Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning, uh, as I alluded to at the beginning of the service, we are finishing off uh, the first letter of Peter uh, with our final sermon uh, in the letter of First Peter from First Peter chapter five. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today is from First Peter chapter five, verses six through fourteen. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Great. Thank you, Haley. As we've been looking uh, in this letter uh, of 1 Peter, Peter has been writing to a group of churches uh, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and helping them uh, to think through what it means for them to live as a minority community of faith uh, in their cities to be, as he's called them, exiles and strangers and aliens in this world, facing uh, persecution, uh, little understood by their neighbors, and seeking to live as representatives of Jesus and the hope that he's given them. And now, uh, here in this final section, Peter draws his attention. Uh, there's still a mention of uh, the cultural surroundings that they find themselves in. He alludes even to the cultural setting that he finds himself in in Rome, referring to Rome as Babylon, the city uh, that arrays itself against God's people. But he begins now uh, in conclusion to draw their focus on their true enemy, to remind them and to draw their attention to the fact that their enemy is not their neighbor. Their enemies are not those with whom they live or even those who persecute them but that there is a real enemy, a supernatural enemy, the roaring lion that is the devil. So let me start this morning with a question. How often do you think about the devil? How often does it enter into your mind uh, that there is a supernatural, personal force of evil 
that opposes God and His creation, His image bearers, you and me, His church, and His redemptive love in the world. How often does the the thought of the devil enter into your mind? If you are uh, like most Americans, like most modern Western people, uh, the answer is not very much. A survey uh, done by the Barna Group showed that uh, among among professing Christians, uh, that that 60% do not believe that Satan really exists, but simply is a symbol for evil in the Bible. So most Christians uh, don't think about the devil hardly ever, if at all. But if you don't think about the devil on a fairly regular basis, which I confess that I do not, uh, then there is a gap between your view of the world and the worldview presented in the Bible. Peter here uh, warns about the reality of this enemy. Paul, uh, over and over again, will be able to identify for his readers, not just the general sense of brokenness and evil in the world, but that threefold uh, reality of the world, the flesh, and the devil as being those things that oppose us in this world. Now, uh, it is possible to think about the devil too much, right? A kind of a, a demon behind every bush, devil made me do it, a view of the Christian life and morality and all these things. But uh, the chances are, uh, as a contemporary person, uh, that you are unlikely, uh, though certainly possible, to be thinking about or obsessing over the work of the devil too much. Far more likely uh, is that we live, most of us, as though what we can see of the world is all that there really is. Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher, wrote a massive and groundbreaking book of intellectual history called The Secular Age. Uh, it's one of those books, uh, I mean, it's, it's huge. Uh, it's one of those books that you buy and start to read in order to feel smart, and a few pages in, you feel pretty dumb uh, as you try to make your way through it. But anyway, Taylor identifies, when he defines uh, the worldview of this secular age, he uses a word that he really coined to describe it, which is that we live in what he calls a disenchanted world, right? That there was a time in this world, actually not all that long ago, when people lived within an enchanted world, where they viewed uh, their world as infused with unseen supernatural reality. That the average person lived with a worldview in which uh, the world was the creation of God, where his spirit filled all things, where his glory bathed the world and he was visible everywhere, where his angels were a vital part uh, of the world, and where uh, the forces of Satan and the demonic were a real threat into their lives. But we, however, live in a disenchanted world where we assume that what we can see and touch and taste is all that there really is. What exists is what can be measured and studied and understood. Now, there is uh, undoubtedly much good in this, right? When you, uh, if you are sick and go to the doctor, uh, you are glad that you have someone who is uh, approaching it from a disenchanted uh, perspective who relies on science and technology and medicine and learning 
That's a good thing. But we should ask ourselves what we lose in the disenchantment of the world. What we lose when we lose the notion of personal malevolent forces of evil. Simply, we find ourselves unable to explain so much of the evil and brokenness of this world. If you've ever uh, read or listened uh, to someone who survived the worst uh, genocides and acts of evil in this world, the survivors of the Holocaust, the survivors of the Rwandan genocide of the 1990s, the survivors uh, of the Bosnian genocide, You'll hear them tell stories of evil that can only be understood as evil. People who were once their neighbors now turning and hunting them. You find yourself unable to understand this level and depth of sin, of darkness, if not for real demonic evil. Andrew Delbanco is a humanities professor at Columbia University student of history, and he wrote a book uh, called The Death of Satan that's about this, uh, the way that we have lost touch with the language of evil in our culture. Delbanco writes this. He says, we live in the most brutal century in human history, but instead of stepping forward to take the credit, the devil has rendered himself invisible. The very notion of evil seems incompatible with modern life, from which the ideas of transgression and the accountable self are fast receding. Yet despite this loss of old words and concepts, Satan, sin, and evil, we cannot do without some conceptual means for thinking about the universal human experience of cruelty and pain. My conviction is that if evil with all its insidious complexity, escapes the reach of our imagination, it will have established dominion over us all. When we lose track of the language and the imagination to see real evil, it doesn't diminish, but it actually can have an unquestioned sway over our lives. As the French poet Baudelaire famously said, the devil's greatest trick uh, is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And so we need a worldview, a vision of the world, of real good, real redemptive good of the God of all grace, and real evil that we have to be on guard against. We do live in an enchanted world. As Shakespeare says uh, through his character Hamlet to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt in your philosophy. And there are more things, friends, in heaven and on earth than we understand. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 6. He tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We've talked much over these last months uh, about just the level of vitriol and polarization that exists in our world, right? How much our country is fractured politically and culturally and ideologically. 
And part of that is, I believe, because we have identified our enemies as flesh and blood. Losing sight of a real enemy. Losing sight of real demons, we end up demonizing of those with whom we disagree and those who seem to stand in our way. And the real enemy lurks behind, happy, with the division and the hatred and the, the suspicion with which we view one another. And so we need to wake up to a world that's charged through with God's grace and purpose, but in which we are resisted by an enemy, to realize that we are a part of a larger story, of God's overcoming of the evil one through his son. And so we're going to look uh, this morning at, at what Peter tells us, that to resist the enemy, we have to both recognize him and recognize his work and resist him standing firm in the faith. The first step uh, of, of waking up into this world is simply to recognize the presence and power of evil in our world. That comes about through doing some of what we've just done, of talking about it, of acknowledging uh, the reality of evil. But it also means we have to understand uh, how the devil works, that we not uh, live, as Paul says, ignorant of his schemes, right? But that we be aware of his strategies, that we be aware of his work in the world. What does the devil do in the world? Well, the first thing that we're going to see is that the devil accuses us, that he is the accuser. If you look at verse 8, uh, Peter starts, be sober-minded, be watchful, so recognize what's happening, have your eyes open. And he says, your adversary, the devil. This word for adversary uh, really probably better means, uh, is better translated as accuser. Uh, it's it's the, the language of a prosecuting attorney in a court of law. Right Now, we have to understand that the, the perspective of the scriptures isn't that there are two equal and opposite forces in the world. Right There's not a good God and a bad Satan that are, that are both godlike and at war. No, no, there is only one God. Right, God, the source of all goodness, of all righteousness, of all creative power, the source of life in the world. Right, He is the true God. And Satan has no power in and of himself above and against that God. He is a, a created fallen being. And so he exists not simply uh, as the diametric opposition of God, but within the world of a righteous judge, within the world of a righteous God who rules all things. All that the enemy, all that Satan can do is lob accusations and persecutions and prosecutions against humanity for how far short we fall of the righteousness of the God who orders all things. The view of the scriptures, and, and there are a few moments, we're going to look at one of them, where the authors of the scriptures will kind of pull back the curtain that separates this world from the supernatural world of heaven. It will give us a vision of God on his throne ordering the world and Satan coming in to make accusations against the people of God for how they've broken his law. One of the famous places that we see this uh, is in the book of Job, right? Satan comes into the heavenly court and, and, and accuses Job, a righteous man, before God saying, he only follows you, God. He only loves you, only worships you 
because you bless him and because his life has gone so well. If you take away your blessing, he'll curse you, right? And so he's uh, the prosecuting attorney building a case according to God's righteousness, right? According to the standards of God's law against humanity. There's a scene uh, that's a little less known than that opening chapter of Job that we see in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3, where the prophet Zechariah is given a vision of a man named Joshua. This isn't the Joshua uh, who led, uh, who was Moses' successor into the promised land. No, this is a man named Joshua who is the high priest of Israel at this time. He was the high priest whose job it was to go before God to make the sacrifices, to offer the prayers for the people in the temple. And yet he was a sinful man, right? As all human priests are, as all human beings are. And so we're given this picture of Joshua the high priest before the throne and judgment of God. Zechariah chapter 3, I'm going to read a bit of it. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is that uh, Old Testament prefiguring of Christ, who we think actually is a, the Old Testament way of talking about the appearance of Jesus. And so Joshua, the high priest, is standing there and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? saying Joshua is an object of God's rescuing grace. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. So here's the picture that, that gives us a picture at the way that Satan works. He brings accusations against humanity for being sinful, for being breakers of God's law. And then interceding between the accusations of Satan and God himself is Jesus, who clothes us with a righteousness, who removes our sin from us. If we have a persecutor before the throne, we also have an advocate. We also have one who covers over our sin by his grace, his mercy, and his righteousness. Friends, the reality is that Satan does have legal ground because we are sinful. Every single one of us has broken the law of a holy God. But when we place our faith in Jesus, when we trust his life, his perfection, his righteousness, and not our own. Our record is thrown out, and we are covered by his. And our accuser, Satan, no longer has a leg to stand on. He no longer has a case to make. He no longer can come before God and beg for our condemnation, because Jesus speaks a better word of righteousness and holiness before his Father. And so, friends, if you trust in Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, you can be confident that the accusations of Satan have no standing before God. The enemy works through guilt and shame, right? He argues our guilt before the Father, 
And that case is thrown out in Jesus. But he also argues our guilt and our shame to our own conscience. Right? He also brings his accusation. Every time that we question our love, the love of God, every time we question our standing before God, every time we, we keep our distance from a holy God, believing that he wants nothing to do with us because of our sin, every time we, we tear ourselves down because of shame, that's the work of the enemy. And it fuels so much of our addiction. It fuels so much of our self-hatred and our contempt. It fuels so much of our hiding. We need to recognize that the voice of the accuser is not the voice of God. It's not the voice of our advocate. So we need to recognize what he does. The first thing he does is he accuses. The second thing that the enemy seeks to do is he seeks to destroy. Look at how Peter describes him. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Right, this is a metaphor of destruction. It's a metaphor of looking to tear someone apart. Now, we think that there is some, something that Peter's doing here cleverly, is that the lion was the symbol of the Roman Empire, the eagle and the lion. And that he's, that he's applying that metaphor of the lion to Satan. In saying, look, these, the, the forces of the Roman Empire that are arrayed against you, the forces that persecute you, uh, really, it's not, it's not Rome itself, it's the power behind the powers. It's the power of Satan behind the Roman Empire, working to try to destroy the church. But what uh, the enemy does is seeks to destroy. Only God can create life. Only God can shape and breathe life. The enemy can't create life. He can only seek to destroy it. And so his goal from the beginning has been uh, the dehumanization of God's image, stripping away from God's image bearers our dignity, our value, our worth, destroying all that God has made and all that God loves. He is uh, one who works destruction in this world. And that destruction is true on both an individual level. He, he seeks to deface and disorder the image of God in us, right? That he, he opposes God's image. It's true culturally. It's true in communities. It's true in relationships. That what the enemy seeks to do is to violate and to destroy what we are made for. That, remember, when we were in Genesis. We talked about God making the world for his shalom his perfect peace, his perfect harmony, his perfect order. Under his reign, you and I in relationships, finding life, finding fullness. The enemy opposes God's shalom, his peace, his wholeness, and his harmony. He accuses, he destroys, and then finally he lies. Jesus describes Satan as the father of lies in John chapter 8. Think about in the Garden of Eden, when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve, what he begins to do is to lie about the nature and character of God. Did God really say, you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He tells lies about the nature of God. He just wants you to, to miss out on what's really good. He tells us lies about ourselves. Satan's main strategy for you and for I, you and for me, is that we would live in a world of lies instead of living in the truth. 
that we would live believing things that simply are not true about ourselves and about our world. Henry Nouwen, uh, the, the late spiritual writer, identified this. He said that you know there's three greatest lies that you and I believe. The three great lies of our culture are I am what I have, I am what I do, and I am what other people say or think about me. Right, the three greatest lies that our world tells us are, I am what I have, right? My wealth, my possessions are ways for me to prove my identity to the world. I am what I do, right? My job, my productivity, all that I can accomplish in this world. I am what I do. And I am what others think of me, right? That I live in the mirror of other people's perceptions of me. And I have to impress them. I have to earn their approval. And each one of these lies, as my old professor Steve Brown uh, used to say, they come from the pit of hell and they smell like smoke. Uh, each one of these lies is a way that the enemy tries to get us to ground our identity in something other than what the Lord says of us. That we are his beloved. That we belong to him and he belongs to us. That we're, our lives are not reducible to what we do or produce. It's not reducible to the, to the wealth that we accumulate. It's not reducible to what other people think of us. That to live in the truth means to live in the light of who God has called us to be. Which transitions us. We have to recognize the work of Satan. And then we have to resist it. And I love, love, love how simple Peter is on this point. Right, Though he, he paints us what admittedly at first glance is a fairly scary picture of Satan. Walking around and roaring like a lion, try, seeking someone to devour. His proactive uh, teaching on this is remarkably simple. Right, there's, no, there's not a hint in him of fear or anxiety. There's not a hint in him of saying, look, in light of this, uh, this devil out there, you've got to learn special ways to deal with it. You have to read special books about Satan or learn special prayers or learn about how to avoid certain things. There's, there's nothing in him that is preoccupied with Satan himself. He says, look, be sober-minded, be watchful, but then stand firm in the faith. The way that we resist Satan is by clinging to Jesus. The way that we resist the enemy is simply by abiding in Jesus by faith. We cling to Jesus. We stand firm in the faith. And that in and of itself robs the enemy of his power. So instead of being preoccupied with the devil and his schemes, Peter urges us to be preoccupied with Jesus and his grace. That when we take our eyes off of Jesus to focus on the enemy, the enemy wins. But when we keep our eyes on Jesus, there's nothing, none of the enemy's schemes can hurt us or touch us as we stand firm in the faith, cling to Jesus and abide in his presence. He urges us to do that in several different ways. First, in verse six, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This language of the mighty hand of God is unmistakably the language of the Exodus, right? Everywhere that this phrase mighty hand of God is used in the Bible, it's used to describe God's mighty hand rescuing his people Israel 
from slavery in Egypt, bringing them through the wilderness into the promised land. So what Peter's doing is he's drawing on this Exodus language to say, you are a part of a story of rescue. You are a, you are a part of a story of God's mighty hand reaching into a broken and sinful world to redeem and to rescue you. This just by way of a uh, preview. Uh, next week, we're going to start a sermon series in the book of Exodus uh, because uh, so much of the biblical story goes back and is held in that story. So much of the way the New Testament talks about our relationship with God and God's saving act in the world is about the Exodus, about that precursor to God's great rescue of us from sin, sickness, death, and the devil. And so he's saying, uh, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. God is doing his rescuing, redeeming work. And to humble yourself under his hand means that you trust him. It means that you don't question him. It means that even when you don't understand what his hand is doing in the world or doing in your life, that you humble yourself before him. That you take the posture of the psalmist in Psalm 131 who says, I don't concern myself with things too wonderful for me. That, it that we take seriously when God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. That we don't always understand what God's redemptive power is doing, but we trust him. You know, there were moments in the Exodus, there were moments um, in God's rescue of his people where his people certainly questioned what he was doing. Right where they were, it's at times they say, God, you brought us out of Egypt simply to bring us into the wilderness to die. You brought us out of a, a place where we were slaves, but at least we were fed to bring us out into this wilderness to, to kill us. There's places where they question Moses' leadership. There's times where they wander in the desert for 40 years. There's times where they, they question whether or not they have what it takes to possess the promised land. There are moments where they questioned God's hand. And friends, there, there, there are and there will be moments in our lives where we don't understand what the mighty hand of God is doing. There's going to be times where we don't see the road ahead of us. There's going to be times where we suffer. There's going to be times where we struggle. There's going to be times where we doubt. There's going to be times where it seems like we can't. Peter's talking about standing firm in faith. Some, there's going to be times where it feels like our faith is just hanging on by a thread. And yet Peter urges us, Humble yourself under his mighty hand, even when you don't understand. Trust his grace and his purpose and his love for you. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. He urges us then further to take our anxieties, verse 7, casting all of your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. He's saying, look, in this world where you don't always understand, in this world where you struggle, in this world where there's so much that's outside of your control, take your anxiety and leave it at the feet of your God because he cares for you. He can carry them. He can, he can own them in a way that you can't. Look, anxiety is principally about the lack of control, right? Anxiety arises in our hearts when we feel threatened, when we feel afraid, when we feel like life is beyond our ability to manage it, to control it, and to get the outcomes out of it that we want, right? And so when we can't get that, anxiety wells up. 
And friends, as finite creatures, life is beyond our control, right? There are things that happen to us that have absolutely nothing to do with what we've done, right? You can, you can eat as healthfully as, uh, as you possibly, possibly could. You could avoid carbs and red meat and all of it and still get cancer. You can still have a heart attack, right? Your health is ultimately beyond your control. We've all felt that recently with the coronavirus epidemic, right? Where, it, where it's come from outside of us. And now we, we're, we're, we're trying to figure out how to control some bit of our lives in the face of it. We're feeling this in our economic life. We're so much of, of our saving and our working and all of that. Though we have some measure of, out, of control over our outcomes, it exists beyond our control. And so God, Peter urges us, place these anxieties in the hands of God, for he cares for you. If I can speak honestly, I think that it's our inability to do this is perhaps the greatest threat to the health of the church, to your health and my health in our current moment. Right? There is a lot of anxiety floating in the world right now. Right? We have political anxiety, we have health anxiety, we have economic anxiety. Because of the presence of, of the internet and social media, we're, we seem to be aware at all times of everything that's going on in the world, all the things that exist beyond our control. And so these anxiety levels in us mount up and they grow. And that anxiety has to get worked out somehow. And it will either get worked out in our own coping mechanisms, right? Our own... Uh, overeating, over drinking, over shopping, our own kind of playing back into our addictions to try to soothe our own anxieties. It might get worked out in antagonism towards those uh, that we think we're opposed to in the world. So we take our inability to control things and we take it out on those people that seem to be standing in our way, right? We, we, we latch on, right? There's been this huge growth uh, of belief in uh, these relatively uh, outlandish conspiracy theories in the world, things that you wouldn't think uh, that well-educated people would, would embrace. And yet these anxieties latch on to something, something that seems to offer us some bit of knowledge or control over an uncontrollable and unpredictable world. And so we fall for things. And so if we're going to manage 2020 with all that it brings, with some sense of spiritual health and wholeness, Resisting Satan is going to mean bringing our anxieties to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm scared. I don't know what's going on. Here, take it. Take my anxiety. Take my worry. Give me your comfort. Give me your peace. And finally, it means that we understand how our story ends. And this may be the greatest remedy to our anxieties of all the greatest remedy to our fear of evil and the evil one. Verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says to this suffering little band of Christians, this group that is misunderstood, persecuted, isolated, and alone in their world. 
And he says, though you may suffer for a little while, we know how the story ends. We know who God is. He's the God of all grace. And we know what he'll do. He will strengthen you. He'll restore you. He'll build you up. He'll establish you. And he says he'll do this after you've suffered for a little while. Now, friends, the problem is that we don't know how long a little while is. Right? What feels like a little while to us from an eternal, per- what feels like an eternity for us is from the perspective of eternity, only a little while. Right? As much as we don't know how long any given suffering is going to last in this world. Right? Sometimes we suffer for a long time, sometimes our suffering is momentary. We don't, you know, we talk about how wild 2020 has been. There's no guarantee that 2021 uh, is going to be different or better. Please, Lord Jesus, let it be different and better. But what we do know is that whatever the little while is that we suffer, whether it's the suffering of our body and our health, whether it's the suffering of our relationships, whatever it is that we're in, we know that one day from the perspective of eternity, we will look back on it and it will have been a little while. Right from the perspective of eternity, you are not going to remember the 2020 election. When you are gazing at the face of Jesus, worshiping him, consumed by his glory, these momentary troubles, these anxieties that we feel are going to be shown as the little while that we had to suffer before the God of all grace finished his rescuing work and the mighty hand of our God established us and strengthened us and rooted us in him in such a way that we would be secure forever. And to him, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your victory over evil is never in doubt. Lord, we thank you that you subdued the forces of darkness and chaos and creation, calling out order and life and peace from the midst of the chaos. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you entered into the evil and suffering of this world, that you didn't stand at a distance, but in fact, took it onto yourself and into your own body on the cross. We thank you that in your resurrection, you exposed the empty powerlessness of Satan's sin and death. And that in you, we rise to new life, certain of the outcome of our redemption. We thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, we do live in an enchanted world. A world in which we are filled with the very powerful presence of our God. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that in this world of suffering and anxiety and concern, that we know, Lord Jesus, that in a little while, you yourself will restore us and secure us and build us up rooted in you forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.